Well, one more time, Merry Christmas uh, from us here at Four Corners. We're so glad you're with us tonight. I, I know that many of you are familiar with some of the Bible stories. You're familiar with perhaps David and Goliath. Some of you may not be, and that's okay. We've designed a church so that if you don't know much about the Bible or theology or this is all new to you, you can fit right in. But maybe you've heard of David and Goliath or perhaps Noah and the ark or maybe Moses and the Ten Commandments. Now, the reason I I bring that up is that sometimes when you hear about these stories in the Bible, they almost sound too true or too good to be true, too fantastical, too, well, too fairytale-ish, almost like a fable, if you will. Uh, You know a lot of the common stories in our day. They begin with the phrase, once upon a time, or they begin with something like, long, long ago in a land far, far away. I think it's how Star Wars began. I'm not sure, but... um, that's kind of how we begin stories. And we tell these stories to our kids to serve as encouragement to them, to serve as a, remo- a, a role model, or to inspire or motivate potentially. That's how stories begin, the kinds of stories that have elements in them that seem too good to be true. There's the young lady who is asleep, and the kiss of a prince will wake her. It begins with once upon a time. There is the man who looks like a monster, but when the beautiful lady who has true love kisses him, then he turns into the man he really was on the inside. You know, this story from your Bible, Beauty and the Beast, have you? Okay, it's not in the Bible. That was just just a test, but we, we begin our stories so often in our modern day and age with once upon a time and or in a land far away, but today's story from the Bible has all the fantastical elements that you find in all the great stories And yet when Luke begins telling his story from the Bible, it does not begin with once upon a time. And it doesn't begin with the other beginnings that a fairy tale or a fable begins with. Because today's story is more than a moral story that simply teaches us how to be good. And it's more than inspiration. And it's more than serving simply as a role model. Today's story is told by a guy so that we would believe the events actually happened. Now, Linus told you the story from Luke's gospel in your Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 independent pieces of ancient literature, many of them penned by eyewitnesses or interviewers of eyewitnesses. And they wrote the stories that they wrote so that we would believe that those stories actually occurred. Their intention was not to convince us this is a good story, pay attention to it, and if you do, you may pick up some moral truth. Their intention was not this is a good story, you might be inspired as you travel life's difficult road. When the Bible writers wrote the stories of the Bible, their intention was to communicate events that happened in time and space, real events that have historical, valid experiences communicated through the written form in the pages of what we call our Bible. This is what Luke did in Luke chapter 2. And I want to take you to those first few words in his story in Luke chapter 2. Luke's Bible book falls under the category of gospel. There are four of them in your New Testament. And each author of those four books in your New Testament, they begin the story of Jesus from their own unique perspective. Luke Historians tell us was a very learned individual. He was a doctor. 
by training. And he tells us in the first chapter that he wanted to write an orderly account so that you and I, the readers of his book, could believe that what he was writing was true. So he begins this way. And as I read these first few words, I want you to contrast them with the beginning of Cinderella. I want you to contrast these words with the beginning of Beauty and the Beast or of Star Wars. Here's what Luke says in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, let's pause here. In those days. Now, you might be holding up a Bible in English written from the original Greek translation um, brought into English, and it might, be, it might say that and it came to pass in those days, or it came to pass. It's just a, a way of saying in English today that this thing happened. See, when Luke begins to tell his story of Christmas, he wants us to know that this is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. And we might be motivated. We might be inspired. We might be encouraged. It may serve as a moral tale. But more than all of that, the story he's about to tell us is actually true. Now, in our modern mindsets, this can be a little difficult. Because when you hear stories of of a little Israelite boy put into a basket, set into the Nile River by his mother who's concerned that he's going to be killed and he's picked up by an Egyptian princess and raised in Pharaoh's house, the story has all the elements of a fairy tale. And so when we read the Bible story, sometimes it's hard to maybe wrap our minds around whether or not they actually occurred in time and space. And so Luke writes his words, it came to pass, almost as if saying to us, I dare you, vet this out. See if this didn't happen in real time. And as a way to give us all clues, he leaves us not simply the elements of a fairy tale. He leaves for us in the story elements of real honest-to-goodness people who lived and breathed and talked and did things and built buildings and, and, and had wars and started a census and led an empire. So that in knowing these real people that occurred in time and history, the kinds of things people would talk about over the dinner table, it would lend the credibility to the story that happened in time and space in the exact same time and space that these more well-known people, perhaps, was being written about. So Luke begins, And it came to pass in those days that Caesar Augustus, Let's pause there for just a moment. Now, Caesar Augustus, this guy has a remarkable story. Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was an amazing military conqueror. And this is a point in Rome's history when they're not quite an empire. They're still led by the Senate. But they are besieged by wars on multiple fronts. And Julius Caesar comes in, cleans up, and creates this central power in Rome unlike they've ever known before. And he's then proclaimed as the supreme ruler of the land. The Senate still holds real authority, but they've basically given him the reins. And people begin to talk about how great Caesar is. But but Caesar has a problem. He doesn't have an heir. There's no one to continue the work. So he sees his nephew, a young nephew by the name of Gaius Octavius. By the way, this is history, friends. This is like, not, I'm not quite yet in the Bible. I'm just kind of in the story that the Bible overlaps. If you don't believe that what I'm saying is true, Google it. And since it's on the internet, you'll know it's true, okay? <laughs> so, so Gaius is Julius Caesar's nephew. 
And Julius Caesar sees him display remarkable courage and determination and fortitude. And he says to himself with a little bit of arrogance, he says, oh, there's something in this boy I like. He reminds me of myself. And since Julius Caesar doesn't have an heir, he adopts his nephew as his own son. He doesn't tell him, though. Julius Caesar thinks he's going to live forever. But if you've read any literature, if you know anything about history, you know that on March 15, the Ides of March in 44 BC, Julius Caesar is killed by somebody in the Senate. And the famous line, E2 Brute, is, is delivered. Julius Caesar goes, and then when he passes, Gaius is in Spain on a military um, expedition. He's 19 years old, and he hears that Julius Caesar has passed, and he begins to make his way back to Rome. And in route to Rome, he discovers that in Julius Caesar's will, he is given all the land, property, money, and most importantly, all the titles that his uncle, adopted father, could bestow upon him. And overnight, this guy who was related to fame and related to power becomes the central player. And he's sharp. And he's political. And he has a significant sense of ego and personal destiny. And he changes the constitution of Rome to effectively depower the Senate and make them a bunch of puppets so that he can hold all the real power. And most historians say that Gaius Octavius, who becomes known as Caesar Augustus, the same dude, he becomes known as Caesar, he's the first real emperor of Rome. Now, listen, I used to teach high school, but you're not in history class. But Luke, in writing his story that's contained in your Bible, wanted to make sure that every single reader who ever read this story did not in their mind think that this was a fairy tale or a fable. So he doesn't begin with once upon a time in a land far, far away and then mix in mythical ideas trying to weave a story to impress us or inspire or motivate or make us moral. He pulls from the newspapers from the Facebook feed and the Twitter feed of his day. They, they didn't have those things, obviously, but the things that were talked about at the dinner table, the things that were on the minds of every person, he pulls from those events happening in the day and in the generation he was writing and says, the story I'm about to tell you happened in time and space. It really occurred. And one of the proofs that you'll know it occurred is it happened in this time frame in the days when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, up to this point, Rome liked to take account of its citizens, but taking account of the entire Roman world was virtually impossible. But Gaius Octavius, also known as Caesar Augustus, had a wild notion. He decided to change the tax, the tax laws in his day. Up to that point, a city or a township would be taxed. Rome would decide, we believe that your basic value and worth is X number of dollars, and you're going to give us 3 to 5% of that, all of you collectively, and everybody that lives in this town, then you've done your tribute, you've done your part as a part of the Roman Empire. Well, Caesar Augustus decided what he would do is he would count every individual person as a way of increasing the revenues to Rome because he had buildings to build. He had wars to fight. And he needed to finance all that. So he issued a decree, history tells us, that all the known world would be taxed, 
not only as a township, but here was the new thing, we'll lower the township tax, but then we'll elevate a new kind of individual poll tax. And each person will go to their own town of residence and pay an individual tax. And then they will have given their fair share as a part of the Roman Empire. Now let me just ask you, do you think an event like that, a major reworking of the tax law, a major new financial burden put on individual people, and a major required trip to your hometown to be registered, do you think that that quickly passes the minds of people? Well, let me just tell you, it doesn't. It sticks with you. It's the kind of things that people talk about over dinner. It's the kind of things where, you know, if you thought this last political cycle had a lot of conversations and Facebook posts and when Caesar Augustus decided to make these changes, Rome was on fire. People were defending Roman citizens all over the place on Facebook. I can't handle what they're talking about. Don't like this. I can't believe that. It was the hotbed of discussion. So when Luke writes his story, the greatest story in the world, almost sounding too good to be true, he wanted to make sure that he planted his story right smack in the middle of real time in history that everybody already knew because he believed the worst thing that could happen with the story he was writing was for people to look at it and go, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, look, there's, there's a moral here for us. Luke wanted people to read his story and go, that, that really happened? Oh, my goodness. That, that's true? If, if that's true, he wanted them to say this. If that's true, it changes everything. That's why he wrote the story. That's why he pulls in what is now a footnote of history, Caesar Augustus, to talk about the greatest story that in his day and age the world was still discovering. And in our day and age, it's still being discovered. The story that Luke wrote had the power to change people's lives. It changed Luke's life. It changed the eyewitnesses that he interviewed, the people that walked with Jesus, that knew Mary that worked alongside Joseph. It had changed their lives. He saw this transformation, and he believed that if God would help him, he could write the story in such a way that people would read it and hear it. And in the hearing and in the reading, they would say this to themselves, if that's true, it changes everything. And so the story of Christmas is not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It may motivate and inspire, but it is more than that. It is the story, the very real story, of God himself breaking through out of eternity into time and space, into our time and space, to change the course of human history. In those days, there went out a decree from the guy everybody knows, Caesar Augustus, that the whole world should be taxed. Do you know that thing that your grandparents are still complaining about? I'm talking about that event. And when all that was going on, there was one little man who lived in Nazareth, but it wasn't his hometown. He had to go 80 miles away to a little city called Bethlehem, David's town, because he and Mary, the woman he was promised to be married to, they were from David's household. And everybody knows that David's household's from Bethlehem. So they had to go from Nazareth, 80 miles to Bethlehem, an eight-day trip. And oh, by the way, she's nine months pregnant. And while they are there, the time passes. 
the real time, not the pretend time, not the fairy tale time, not the fable time. The time passes for the, for the lady and she gives birth to a son. And it changes everything. This son is not like any other son. This son has a special title. It's a title that people in the Roman world had already heard about. Everybody who read Luke's writings for the first times and the second times, they already had heard this title. Because, because when Caesar Augustus <laughs> became the emperor of Rome, when Caesar Augustus became the emperor of Rome, something special was happening. Two years after he becomes emperor in 44 B.C., and so in 42 B.C., the Senate moves to declare his adopted father, Julius Caesar, the ultimate deity. They declared him to be a god by vote. Sounds like a good idea to me. Why don't you vote for me to be a god? I would, I'd appreciate that. Other than the fact that it's blasphemy and a pastor should never say that. That's kind of <laughs> bad. But Julius Caesar and his heirs, at least, they thought that was a good idea. And people began to worship Julius Caesar as the top of the list of all the gods in Rome. He was given the title, the divine Caesar. And Caesar, Augustus, his adopted son, his nephew turned son, guess what title he gets? Son of the divine Caesar. Over time, it gets shortened to son of the divine. We would say in our modern terms, he gets the title son of God. And he lives that way as if he is the ultimate authority. And in the middle of his story being written, the story of history, you can open up your history books, go to your Google Docs or Wikipedia and look at that story you can read. In the middle of that story, what is now virtually a footnote of history, another larger story, more true, more real, more cataclysmically important is being written. In a little town in Bethlehem, there's a woman and a man, and they have a horrendous journey to make. 80 miles, 8 days. And yet when that baby is born, his title is not a trumped-up title given to him by some strange adoption where he becomes the son of the divine. He is, Luke tells us, the very son of God. That God chose to put himself in human form, take on the form of a human and come down and live among his creation so that every pain we've ever felt, every trial we've ever gone through, every temptation we've ever faced, that son of God, his name is Jesus, has experienced it all so that nothing that we've ever faced catches him off guard. He's experienced it all just like us. And he lives his life on this earth, but he doesn't just live his life on this earth. While he's here, he does incredible things. Things that sound so good, in fact, too good to be true, that Luke keeps planting his story in real time and space so that nobody who reads his gospel would ever think, oh, that's a nice story. We should probably pause and reflect. That wasn't his intent. He wanted everybody who read his story to go, if this is true, that's the greatest thing the world has ever seen. This changes everything. Luke was on to something. Because for 2,000 years, people have been reading his story. And at the end of it, they haven't simply been saying, I'm motivated to change. I want to be a better human. They haven't been saying, I'm now inspired to continue walking my troubling path. They have been saying, 
You, Jesus, are the Son of God, and I put my faith and trust in you. For 2,000 years, Luke, his followers, and the followers that came after him, they read this story, and it changed not just the world in some separated, objective sense. It changed their world in a very personal, subjective sense. For 2,000 years, believers have been putting their faith and trust in this baby born in a manger, believing that he was unlike any other child ever born, that he was, in fact, God in the flesh, the very one that would help span the gap between the creator and the created, the very one who would wipe away sin and take its penalty on himself, the very one who they read the story as he was put up in a mock trial, trumped up charges of which he was not guilty found guilty, condemned to die, hung on a cross, and then the story gets crazy. The story says that he was dead for a while, but then he rose from the dead, and when Luke is writing that story, and Matthew's writing that story, and Mark is writing his story, and John's writing his story, they want every person who ever read that story to come to the same conclusion. Do you mean he's not dead anymore? This sounds too good to be true. To which they would respond and say, but it is true. Because the Christmas story is not a fable. It's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. In time and space, Jesus broke through and changed the course of human history. And he's still doing it. For 2,000 years, he's been doing it. Millions of believers all over the world right now. Some are meeting in public. Some in private. Some in secret. Some in cathedrals. Some in churches like ours. And they're celebrating not a great story, not simply generosity and goodwill. Those are important and they have their place. We're a part of that larger thing that's going on. But they're celebrating something specific, that Jesus Christ, God himself, was born in human form and gave his life as a ransom for humanity. Not in general, but humanity in the sense of he gave his life for you and me. He gave his life for me and for you so that we could join with literally millions of people throughout the last couple thousand years and not be some strange, aberrant, fantasy-based commitment, but a true and honest in time and space commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Luke took great pains to tell us that it came to pass in those days, the days you already know about. The days that remarkable things were happening in the world, but underneath the current of the political headlines and the front page news, there was another story being woven, a story that would change the course of human history. And he still is. In fact, you're sitting in a room where there are dozens, if not scores, perhaps a couple hundred people sitting around you who believe to the core of their being that this story is not a fairy tale. They have staked their claim that what Jesus said he was, what Luke wrote him to be, as he interviewed people, as he watched the effect of people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, that what Luke was writing about, they have put their faith and claim that it's true, that it really happened, and it has made all the difference in the world at large, but in their world particularly. And I'm hoping today, as we spent just a little bit of time, talking about Luke and how serious he was and making sure we knew this wasn't a fairy tale, even though it sounds too good to be true, I'm hoping that if you haven't put your faith and trust in him, 
But tonight will be the night that you'll join with millions of people. Not to join with us to be a part of some group that's already drank the Kool-Aid. That's not what this is about. But to join with millions of people who looked at the story and said, this is not a fairy tale. It is true and it has changed my life. It has changed my life. One of the other gospel writers, John, he doesn't begin with a manger. He begins with Jesus in heaven before time begins and says that Jesus was with God because he is God. They're one and the same. But when Jesus broke through time and space and on a real day, on a real calendar, in real time, he was born in the flesh as a baby, what happened then in reality was that light broke into the world, that he was the light. And everywhere he went, the light shined and dispelled the darkness. This is what he writes over and over and over again in John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He avoids the manger scene, but he talks about not the what that happened like Luke did, but he talks about the why that God did it. And so by the time you get to John chapter 3, this other writer of the story of Jesus so convinced that it's true because it had changed his life and everybody around him had been touched by the truth of the story, John wants to make sure that everybody who reads his particular story doesn't miss the truth of why God did what he did in coming to the earth in the form of Jesus. Luke wanted to make sure we knew that it really happened, and John wanted to make sure that we knew why it happened. So in John chapter 3, perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture in our modern time, in fact, so commonplace that it's almost sometimes lost its punch, as if somehow familiarity might actually breed a little contempt with these kinds of things. In John chapter 3, verse 16 Many of you have heard this passage. For some of you, it might be relatively new. John tells us why. And he wanted to make sure that everybody that ever opened up his little document telling the story of Jesus, what he did, how he gave his life, how he was resurrected, would forever know why God came to begin with. So in John chapter 3, verse 16, here's what John writes. For God so loved the world that he gave... Here's the way we'll say it here. God loved and he gave. God loved, so he gave. It's as if John is saying that the whole motivation for Jesus coming, I ain't going to tell you the story of the mechanics of how it happened. I want to pull back the veil and show you why it happened. The whole reason it happened, the whole reason Christmas occurred is because God loved us. And he didn't love us so that he could come to us and say, you filthy scum that I created, you've disobeyed me so much. Now kneel before me and take your rightful place as worms. That wasn't the heart and the motivation that God had. Some truth in that a little bit. Most of us have known to do things we shouldn't do and done things we knew we shouldn't do. And In some regard, there's a little bit of guilt for, you know, on, on all of us. But that's not why God came, to hold the banner and say, look how awesome I am and how terrible you are. Although, let's be honest, isn't that the kind of reputation sometimes that God gets in our world? John wanted every reader to know that reads his story as a true eyewitness of the events of Jesus' life to get the real heart behind God and behind Christmas. God loved, so he gave. 
God loved, so he gave. It was as if John was saying, you can't love without giving. Love demands an object. God is made of love. He is love. He's love personified, and love wants to be expressed. And so God, this bundle of love and light, breaks into the world scene with a heart that will change everything. God so loved the world that he gave. And then John continues to write so that we're not just stuck with the why and we, we nod our hand and go, mm, isn't that nice? That's not the response John wanted the readers of his gospel to have. Mm, isn't that nice? God loves us. John had a much more direct intent, one that goes right to the heart of the matter. Whereas Luke is writing on a large scale, objectively, here's what happened. John is going for our own individual hearts. So John writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the greatest gift, the most precious thing, the very son of God, so that we might believe. We believe and we receive. We believe and we receive. God loved and he gave. We believe and we receive. This is John's motivation for writing the book in your Bible called John so that we would see God's love in action in the person of Jesus come in the form of a baby, given his life, teaching remarkable moral truths, but so much more than morality. Deeply inspiring, perhaps the most inspiring figure of all of human history, inspired plays and music and songs and movements and hospitals and education, perhaps the most inspiring figure in all of human history, but so much more than just inspiring. So much more than just motivating or encouraging. He is the very Son of God. And John says, if we believe He is who He claimed to be, then we could receive and be recipients of this amazing gift of love and life. That's the point of Christmas. It really did happen, and it has changed everything for millions of people for the last couple thousand years and for hundreds of people in this building tonight. And the other side of the coin is, is that God did it because he loved us, not to shame us, not to make us feel distant. In fact, just the opposite, to wipe away shame, wipe away guilt, and to close the gap between the creator and the created. That you and I are deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. He didn't just love the world at large. He loved us on an individual level and sent His Son, Jesus, into this world of trouble. So that sons and daughters could be, of, of human beings could become sons and daughters of God. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, said it this way, that the Son of God became a son of man so that sons and daughters of men could become sons and daughters of God. That's why. And it would be a tragedy if anybody in this room left tonight without at least understanding that the biblical writers and millions of people throughout human history and millions of people today in public and in secret believe to the core of their being that what Luke wrote and John wrote were actual, historically verifiable events in human history that have changed everything, and that you and I could put our faith and trust in that man, Jesus, and it would change everything for us. I couldn't let you leave here tonight without understanding the most basic message of Christmas, that Jesus really did come 
to this earth. And he really did give his life. And he really did rise from the dead because God loved us and wanted us to receive the life he has for us. Now around here, we typically take next bold steps. And today we're going to do that by taking a little bit of a spiritual survey. So no matter where you are on the spectrum of spiritual life, I'd like for you, if you don't mind, to take out that connect card that Pastor Greg and Pastor Matt referenced earlier. And I'd like for you to just have a moment of honesty. We value honesty at this church. We don't want you to put on an air or pretend. We want you to come as you are, and just as you are, you can be a part of us. Whether you believe what I believe, if you think everything I'm saying is hogwash today, you can still be a part of this church. There are things you can do. Now, you can't teach from the stage, but you can serve. You can help. There are things you can do. And we want you to know that we accept you right where you are, and you can be a part of us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a bit of a spiritual survey today and just in one snapshot in time here at Christmas Eve, just be honest with ourselves and honest with God in a private way and say, here's where I really am. So next step, A, I'm wondering if this is you tonight. I want to accept or I am accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life for the very first time. I'm not talking about the Lord and Savior of the world. He is that. Whether you and I acknowledge that, the Bible teaches that that's true. I'm talking on a much more personal level, that you want to accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life tonight. If you'd like to do that, we'd ask you to check the box with the pen that was provided. And when the offering bucket comes by at the end of our service, you just put that card in the offering bucket. And this staff and I are going to pray for you. We don't pressure you. You're not joining our church. You're not committing to anything. We're not approaching you about giving money. None, none of that. We're going to send you an email and some stuff in the mail that says, here's what a relationship with Jesus looks like. And then this staff and I, we're going to pray for you. Because we believe that if you make this decision, and this is a good day to make that decision, then you have effectively unwrapped the gift of Christmas. You have put your faith and trust in Jesus. And it hasn't just changed the world, it will change your world. The next step B. And there might be some folks in the room that say, hey, I've done that, but I haven't gone public. I've not, got, I've not gotten baptized. If you'd like to be baptized, it's the way that millions of Christians for 2,000 years have said, I'm with Jesus, and they identify with him through baptism. And we identify with each other, and effectively we're saying we're not perfect. And God doesn't call us to perfection, but we are washed, we are clean, we are set free because Jesus came to this world. If you'd like to do that, if you'll check the box, somebody from our team will be in touch with you and answer your questions and maybe get you set up to be baptized. So here's what makes our church a little bit different, the next two. And both of these are okay if it's where you are tonight, just be honest. Next step, C. I'm considering, Ben, but I'm not there yet all the way. I, I hear you. You obviously believe it, but I'm not there. That's okay with us. But could you just be honest and say, hey, I'm considering. And if you check that box, we're going to shoot you an email that says, hey, would you like to talk? That's it. You don't ever have to respond. But we could talk via email or phone or set up a coffee. No high pressure or anything. We'd like to talk to you and maybe answer some of your questions or at least share with you our story, a story of imperfection and each of us saved by grace. And the next step, D. This is why I love our church. It's okay if you do this. If this is where you are, this is what you need to do. This is the box you need to check because we don't believe in putting on airs or fronts here. Next step, D. I don't think I'm ever going to become a Christian. Ben, you've drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> you and that church, I mean, you're, you're serious, but I'm, I'm not there. Hey, if you check the box, you know what we're going to do with that? We're going to say, hey, welcome to our church. You can come, do whatever, be a part of us, ask your questions, don't ask your questions, whatever. You can just come be a part of us. But just be honest with where you are. How about next step B? 
no matter where you are, maybe this applies to you, and maybe you checked something else and E, I'd like for you to pray for me to have more of Jesus in 2013. At Christmas, we celebrate the gift that is Jesus, and it's really all about a new beginning. And then right around the corner, we celebrate a new year that really, I think, gives us a moment to say, thank you, Jesus, for fresh starts. And if you'd like to have more of Jesus in your life or your family, check the box. And me and my staff and this prayer team, we will lift you up in January and ask God to be a part of your lives. Hey, let's pray about these things right now, and then we're going to sing some more songs to our awesome God. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus to this world that you came and gave your life in the form of a baby. And you grew up and you taught us powerful things and you did miracles and you showed us how to love and how to give, but most of all, you gave your life on a cross to cover our sins. But thank you, Jesus. You're not dead anymore. You are alive today. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that if we put our faith and trust in what you did in Jesus, we can have that life ourselves, the life you promised everlasting life, so that none of us need to perish, but we could have eternal life with you. Now, Father, I want to hold up those that are making a decision right now to accept you as their Lord and Savior. They don't understand it all fully, but tonight you've spoken to them, and they're feeling compelled and motivated to do what millions in front of them have done, and hundreds in this room have done, and put their faith and trust in you. Yes, it's too hard to believe, but tonight you have convinced them it's true. Thank you, Lord. God, I want to thank you for those that are considering and they're not there and they're just being honest in their journey. Thank you for their honesty. God, if you'd have us be a part of their questions, a part of their journey, I pray you'd open that door for us. And God, thank you for those that are brutally honest and say, I don't think this is for me at all. I don't believe that stuff. God, would you let them know that our heart for them is simply that they can come be a part. Maybe just of the good stuff that we do or at least know that they're loved here in this place. Now, Father, as a church, thank you for this amazing celebration of the gift of Jesus. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. As imperfect as we are, we pray this all in the name of Jesus, the strong and risen Son of God. Amen and amen.